0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 126, The Paradox.
1: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room.
0: Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in fun and format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Chuck Kroll. Chuck is a forensic accountant, and he has been studying the MOC, or maintenance of certification issue, with relation to the various specialty medical boards for quite some time. You might have heard about this, as we had some episodes on this earlier, but quite a long time ago. But maintenance of certification is critical to physicians being able to practice their trade in hospitals, and outpatient settings. If you don't have certification, you are unable to really practice medicine. That's not entirely true. There are some instances where you can work around the system, but if you want to work within the major system, which includes insurance companies and hospitals, you have to be board certified. This causes essentially a regulatory capture system, in which case you're forced to participate through a single entity, and they can charge whatever amount of money they want, and they can actually have you do whatever they want as far as requirements to maintain your certification. This is a bad system. It's got lots of problems, and we're going to discuss that in the show, but we're going to discuss basically the corruption that goes along with this. If you're a physician, this is something that you know, but you're going to get a lot more details today. If you're a patient or someone who just is around medicine, uh, this is going to give you a better idea of what the physicians face, and this is really driving a lot of the problems within medicine as far as physicians retiring early leaving the profession, and I think this is something that affects all of us, and so I think we should have a general understanding of what's going on, and what you can do about it, hard to say exactly. I mean, there's going to be some funding that you can help with the efforts of Chuck Kroll and others who are working to combat maintenance certification problems, but the important thing is to know what the problem is and recognize it, understand it, and then from there, we can figure out solutions, because you know, I'm not going to pretend to have the solutions, but I'm sure someone out there will have a way of figuring this out. This is a little bit longer interview because it's so in-depth and extensive, so I will keep my comments brief. You can find show notes and links to further details and information that Chuck Kroll talks about at theparadox.com 126. But before we go to the show, a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Physician Financial Services, a business widely recognized in the physician community for disability insurance. Lawrence B. Keller, CFP, has been in the insurance and financial services industry since 1990, Unlike medicine, which has a standardized path that physicians must take to gain to the education, training, and experience requirements necessary to obtain board certification, the insurance and financial services industry does not. While he might not be a doctor's first phone call regarding their insurance needs, he's often their last. Find Larry at doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash Larry Keller or at the link in the description of the show. Now on to the show, how medical boards are fleecing America's doctors. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my new friends, Chuck Kroll and Liz Tremblay. We're going to talk about MOC. And for those who don't know the terminology, we'll kind of go through some of the lingo. MOC is short for maintenance of certification. If you're a physician, you are painfully aware of what maintenance of certification is. If you're a layperson, you probably have never heard of it before. And these two individuals have been working tirelessly to expose the corruption of the MOC process. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll talk about MOC briefly, and main certification is where you get You're initially certified for such specialty. After you finish your residency training, you go and you get a specialized training certification in whatever the specialty is. Mine is anesthesia. My wife's pediatrics. People know family practice obstetrics, neurosurgery. Everybody has their own uh, specialty. And that used to be for life, and then in the 90s, that changed. And then your certification was time dependent. So it would actually expire after a certain amount of time if you didn't actually recertify and fulfill certain requirements. Generally at the time, it was a simple test and most people would pass the test as long as they could speak English. And then they would pay some amount, some fee. And so this is a way I think for hospitals to verify that you were who you said you were <clears throat> if you like moved to a different state. And then you said, hey, I'm a neurosurgeon. They'd, they'd have some sort of way of checking and verifying that you were actually a neurosurgeon. You would finished training. Anyway, this, of course, has accelerated in the last 20 years, and now it's become a very expensive endeavor, and it takes a lot of time. And I just as an example, mine's about $10,000 for every 10-year cycle, so I average about $1,000 a year probably as far as travel and all the different components I have to pay for, and it becomes more and more expensive. And so we're going to talk about sort of how this happened and why this is a problem. But again, thanks for starting, Chuck, and if you want to start, for one thing, your forensic Accountant is what you sort of describe yourself. I kind of curious what that is, but then also just give you your background, I guess, and how the, you sort of came up with that ter- that uh, title.
1: Um,
2: forensic accountant was um, really a self description. I'm a certified public accountant. When I was with Minnesota Specialty Physicians a little over twenty years ago, I got involved in digging through some public records with one of the large health plans that we had a contract with and we were the umbrella group for about 50 specialty clinics, different specialties uh, in the state of Minnesota. So it was really not the traditional accounting, you know, month-end close, that type of thing. And it was more investigating what's going on, looking for financial reporting anomalies. Typically when the word forensic account comes up, it's in the public's mind they might think of somebody testifying in court. I've never testified yeah. in court. What I've been doing with the specialty boards more recently is what I would consider forensic accounting work, looking for financial reporting anomalies, chasing down leads, you know, pursuing yeah. things that don't feel right, don't look right. I have enough experience where I can pretty quickly sniff out, you know, are they cooking the books? You know, as it turned out in Minnesota, I work behind the scenes with the Attorney General and he launched an investigation against this payer that we were negotiating with that was pleading poverty. And through my analysis that was vetted by attorneys within the Attorney General's office, they concurred with my findings. A lot of my findings were inserted word for word in the final report that the Attorney General issued. Anyway, long story, there was a number of lawsuits the Attorney General filed against It was Medica and Alina Health System was the system up in in Minnesota. What was happening was that the health plan was, in fact, hiding profits, which should probably come as no surprise to most of your listeners. And it was quite simple, almost comical, what they were doing from an accounting point of view. They probably thought, well, no one either, no one understands these reports that they were filing annually with the state or no one's gonna look at them, or even if they look at them, they don't care. The attorney general thought there might be some, you know, maybe good political benefit that came out of it. it, There was a lot of hostility against health maintenance organizations in the state of Minnesota. The press was not necessarily pro-physician at the time, but they were definitely hostile to HMOs. So I had a very receptive press that I was working with behind the scenes and I was leaking very damaging information. I discovered which was a lot of fun. It's like, no, I don't want my name associated with this, but this is what's going on. And because of my position here, we're negotiating with this organization, you know, as an employee at that specialty group. That story had a happy ending as far as I was concerned. Attorney General sued them. They both Medic and Alina, it broke up. The entire board of the health plan Medica was replaced. You know, there was. Uh, I testified at the at a hearing in the Minnesota Senate Finance Committee at the at the conclusion of this, uh, with my recommendations for more transparency in the reporting. It, it was a story with a happy ending and as far as the physicians were concerned they they saw it as a huge victory you know the health plan got outed in terms of the the uh, cooking of the books the scheming that was going on <laughs> and fast forward to 2014, when I had just gotten onto Twitter, I started, uh, you know, I thought, well, how can I use Twitter to promote my accounting, you know, traditional accounting mm-hmm. services, to, you know, in healthcare, specializing in healthcare, working on the physician side, working for physicians all these years. And I started seeing tweets that were a little bit disturbing to me the word extortion was being linked with this maintenance of certification, which I honestly, I'd never heard of. And, and I'll be frank, and any non-physicians listening to this in your audience, uh, you know, patients, you know, yeah, they, they know these boards exist. Maybe they don't know there's 24 plus ABMS. And, you know, but I certainly never heard of maintenance of certification. I thought, wow, you know, if physicians are using the word extortion. There must be something to it. Because it, it ran contrary to, you know, it's a very militant attitude that I was seeing, you know, frustration among the physician community. I thought, well, you know, what's going on here? So Dr. Linda Gerges, she's a, a family medicine doc in New Jersey, I believe, published an article in Med City News. The title of her piece was Are the Medical Boards Extorting the Physicians? I thought, oh, this is interesting. I believe she's ABM, American. Board of Family Medicine. She may be an American Board of Internal Medicine. So just out of curiosity, I thought this might be fun to pursue this, you know, bring back the glory days of Minnesota, yeah. you know, slaying the evil dragon of uh <laughs> Alina. You know, I started poking around pulling tax returns for American Board of Internal Medicine and quickly found out they had a related organization ABIM Foundation much to my surprise and maybe a little of, uh, chagrin and with an excitement i thought whoa you know, American mm-hmm. Board of Internal Medicine was reporting huge deficits 40 50 million dollars in yeah. deficits i thought what the hell is going on here are they bankrupt organization well respected at least you know my perception At the time you know how is this even possible they're bringing in tens of millions in uh testing fees maintenance certification of course certification fees for docs coming out of school i thought no that can't be right there it can't be going bankrupt then i pulled i married the numbers that i was pulling for uh, american board of internal medicine or abim with the foundation numbers and i quickly found out what was happening on a consolidated basis if you smash the two organizations together they were not bankrupt but they were in a financial freefall on a consolidated basis they were over they were worth 62 million in the year 2000 In other words, the value of both organizations consolidated was worth 62 million. By the time I was looking at the numbers, they were down to 10, 15 million. I thought, what the hell? I mean, is this possible? How could this possibly be happening? That they're going bankrupt? They're in a slow-motion death spiral. There was that was the only way that I could describe it. And so, I within a week or two after sleeping on it and looking at the numbers upside down, right to left, left to right. I, I thought, okay, no, my, they are going bankrupt uh, in slow motion. So I reached out to both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I thought, oh, this is a fun story. You know, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And then I, I see this, oh, the foundation purchased a condo, $2.3 million, you know, two blocks from their headquarters that's, you know, they're going bankrupt and they're purchasing a $2.3 million condo three blocks from their office. So I passed on my findings to both the Wall Street Journal and uh, the New York Times, both picked up on the story or were very, very interested, uh, particularly the, the New York Times. It was Elizabeth Rosenthal. She was a healthcare reporter at the New York Times. And she thought, no, this can't be right. It's you know, how could that be? This is ABIM, you know, they were under the leadership of Dr. Christine Cassell, very popular, you know, a star in the healthcare community, eventually met with Dr. Rosenthal in Chicago to go over my numbers. And she informed me that she was writing a book and would like to include some of my findings in her book, which she did. And it was published in 2017. The Wall Street Journal's angle to it was the reporter, a healthcare reporter, but not a forensic, uh, not an investigative journalist, took the lead on that, was my contact person. She contacted ABIM and said, hey, can you give us 12 years of your audited financial statements? I've never shared this story publicly with anybody. I'm sure they thought, holy what?" Where did that come from? (laughs) Right? Okay, we're going bankrupt. We didn't want anyone to to know we're going bankrupt. Keeping in mind, this is in the summer of 2014. It's my understanding that this new mock program, which was causing a lot of the um, indigestion with the physicians, was this new mock program that was rolled out in 2014. And there was a lot of pushback in the physician community. The Wall Street Journal emailed them and said, hey, you know, we'd like to see, please send us 12... It was a very friendly request. Please send us 12 years of your audited financial statements, you know, to verify really what yes. you're looking for is, okay, is Chuck unhinged? Is he dead on? You know, let their number, let's see, let's, let's hear their, you know, the side of the story from their perspective. And within a week or so, they got back to the reporter and said, well, okay, we're not going to give you 12 years. In fact, we're not going to give you any years. <laughs> This is a Wall Street Journal. I, it is mind-boggling. They said, but, but what we will do, because there are financial st- in so many, well, I'm paraphrasing here, we will happily meet you in New York, drive from Philly to New York, and we will sh- bring in one year of financial statements. And because they're so complicated, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, we're going to take it back from you. You can't keep a copy of it. You can't make a copy. Copy. You can't keep a copy. I, when the reporter contacted me, say hey, they're not going to give us. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. Do they know who you're? This is the Wall Street Journal. What? Who are you... Do they know who they're talking to here? I said, okay. That that was really like strapping a 16-cylinder engine on my back because okay, they're hiding something. I'm on to something. Why would they decline to send the Wall Street Journal audited financial statements? We're not. They didn't ask for internal documents things of that nature they asked for the bread and butter audited financial statements and they were, they were refusing to provide that and then coming up with this lame excuse well, it's so complicated
0: so you kind of stumbled into this i mean it sounds like you were you obviously had this history of falling breadcrumbs and it just sort of just became a kind of a a pet project and then and then it, when the evasiveness began then you really then you really became interested like you might have lost interest but then they they went out of their way to make sure that that you stayed on him.
2: I'll be honest with you, I was, I was really angry at that point. It's like, okay, I know I should probably never take any, and I don't take any of this personally, but what's going on? Do they think they could just deny that request and just walk away and no one will say anything or do anything about it? Soon thereafter, uh, I contacted, I thought, well, a class action lawsuit is probably in order. So I did make some initial contacts with some uh, class action law, uh, attorneys in Minneapolis and Chicago the law firms weren't interested at the time I know Dr. Fisher and Dr. Uh, Marion Mass and her group Dr. Dixon and PPA organization was instrumental in raising funds to file suit which happened in in December of 2018 but backing up to the fall of 2014 the Wall Street Journal, Reporter called me and said, Well, what do we do? They're not going to give us any financial statements. I said, Okay, this is the most ridiculous situation I've ever seen in my life, but okay, we'll deal with it. And as it turns out, in the state of Pennsylvania, where they were headquartered, the state of Pennsylvania requires nonprofits under certain circumstances to file an audit report with the state. Okay. So I said, Okay, there you go. That's our. That's our answer, we'll go to the state, we'll get copies of the audit reports and see if they confirm my narrative that, okay, ABIM is in a slow motion uh, financial freefall. The state was able to provide a couple years, of course, ABIM did not know that the Wall Street Journal was their reporter was reaching out to the state of uh, Pennsylvania. She actually had to end up calling the governor's office if they can believe it to, you know, shape some of the financial statements loose. Not because they were hiding anything, it's just because of the bureaucracy and so on. But we did get some, a couple years of older financial statements, very complete. They were, you know, they fit with my narrative that, okay, they're in trouble. And they also gave much more information that's than what's available on a tax return of form 990, which is the tax return for a nonprofit. We said, okay, well, we've got two years worth from the state of Pennsylvania, we'll run with that. And I was hoping that the Wall Street Journal then would at that point run with the story. And they were dragging their feet. Again, the, the reporter was not an investigative journalist. I don't think she understood what this really meant, you know, what the big picture was, what the significance of this was, what a serious story that was here. And in the meantime, uh ABIM was getting some pressure to publish the financial statements on their website, which in January of 2015 they did. I thought okay, they're Maybe they got rattled by the call, you know, the previous summer from the Wall Street Journal looking for financial statements. So they're going to try to make an effort towards transparency. What they posted on their website, you know, kind of fit in with this Keystone Cops feeling that I was getting, you know, with that organization was they posted a financial statement that was not complete. I thought, oh, God. I mean, you know, this is just becoming comical. And by not complete, I mean that they, you know, they filed a full set with the state of Pennsylvania, which they did not know we had a copy already. (laughs) And they filed this partial financial statement. And, you know, by that time, I'm all riled up. I'm thinking, who do they think that, you know, honestly... Uh, can you be more stupid? You know, they, don't they know they're filing these full reports with the state of Pennsylvania? And don't they know that the public can get them? I mean, this is the Wall Street Journal that's calling the governor's office. I published an article in Met City News at the end of January 2015 saying, hey, APIM omitted all these key financial reports. So I wasn't going to wait around for the Wall Street Journal to run the story. And by then I was uh, working closely with Dr. Fisher Wes Fisher out of Chicago, who's been really at the forefront of this issue, and he had just published a huge piece of write up, his most popular uh, piece ever, I believe, in December of 2014, detailing the condo and all the shenanigans going on at ABIM. So um, I ran that, published that story, and then within two weeks, ABIM posted the corrected financial statements to their website anyhow that was the that was the drama that that went on between August of 2014 and, and February of 2015 was that you know they were trying to their there ABM I felt was always on their heels uh, they weren't expecting this. But they didn't know how to handle it. They don't, didn't know how to handle the questions. Dr. Behrens, I don't know if you remember, they me a couple about, you know, we made mistakes and so on and so forth. And, you know, we'll do better next time. So they, at that point, they were in damage control.
0: So I guess, you know, to recap, I, um, I had Dr. Fisher on way back. He was on and he went through some of these things, which are completely outrageous as far as just, and he just was focusing on the American Board of Internal Medicine, which is what you're talking about, the A B I M. Correct. Where they owned real estate, they had condominium in downtown. I think they had one in Philadelphia. I think it was, and they have one in New, right. New York City. And they had like full limo service. All their executives fly first class everywhere. And and the problem, of course, is that all their mu- revenue comes from the fees they acquire from physicians through a basically a forced system, a taxation system essentially, where you have to give revenue in order to practice because you can't practice. Very easily, let's say it's almost impossible to practice medicine without having a board certification. And so, because of that, you have to pay these fees. And as they increase the fees, you just have to pay them, whatever it is. And at some point, there was a point where if you were trained early enough before the before the certification became time limited, you actually didn't have to pay. You were grandfathered. So it was a way all the new grads come in and they'd have to do this maintenance certification process. The older docs. Didn't have to because, you know, they they got in before it, they, it was time limited. But then suddenly the ABIM decided that you had to actually do it. Even if you were grandfathered, now you no longer were. And you had to pay money and you had to participate in the MOC. Except they knew that these docs weren't used to doing the MOC process. They're not used to the testing and all this stuff. And so they said, you know what? Just give us some money and it'll be good. <laughs> but if you don't pay us, you don't get it. And so that's when the docs went tru- truly crazy because they're like, so this is, it exposed themselves as, you know, basically money bank adventure. And they obviously are not very clever as far as how they're hiding their money. Uh, they're not like some master thief, uh, because it is all publicly reported. Right. But, but they probably were under the rightful assumption that no one would ever look right. Cause most doctors are busy. No one else is going to care about except doctors. And so that's where you come in, I guess. And so I guess, you know, aside from those outrageous things that ABIM, Give us an idea of, I guess one thing that is always confusing, and and I think it's intentionally confusing, is the foundation principles. Because I think every board has, that they have their board, and then they have some sort of foundation, the foundation for patient safety and anesthesia or whatever it is. What is their relationship between each other? Because they always say they're separate entities, but I think what you've uncovered is that's really not the case.
2: My theory on the foundations, it's a good question. You know, what, what, why was the American Board of uh, ABIM Foundation established? It was established in 1989, within a month or two after they also established a pension plan, and the pension plan is a key component this story because in addition to tens of millions of dollars being shipped came in the front door at ABIM through mock fees and certification fees and then what they were doing is then shipping it out the back door to the foundation get it off the books you know so that the docs aren't saying hey you've got you know 50 million in cash why are you charging us why do you have so much money you know why do you have so much in in investments well get it off the books i mean it was beautifully stupid (laughs) um is how I would describe it and again I think you're correct they thought no one's going to pay attention no one's going to see us shipping this money out the back door what they did curiously and this is something that uh Liz Rosenthal picked up in in her book is that they they uh, ABIM Foundation reported on the tax return that was formed in 1999 which is incorrect It was formed in 89 so that and for years i mean you know at least five or six years and they also reported the incorrect state of incorporation now this might sound like trivia to your listeners like well what difference does that mean you know in the accounting field you know if you're getting the year of incorporation and the state of incorporation wrong (laughs) i mean you're in trouble and you know how many pairs of eyes look at those at that or should check it annually So I thought, okay, there's some scheming going on here with, okay, they didn't want the docs to know that the foundation has been around since 89, perhaps. In the meantime, between 89 and on, they started shoveling money into the retirement plan. So there was a two-pronged approach. This is my theory, that when they implemented the 10-year testing, they did the numbers and said, you know, our revenue is going to triple our annual revenue when we have. If you look at the age of the docs and, you know, yeah. so on and so yeah. forth, you know, it's like, what are they going to do with all this cash? They're going to be a wash in cash. Let's set up a foundation. Let's get the cash off the books of ABIM. They also set up the retirement plan. Let's make sure our people are well situated at retirement. But to this day, I. I can only go back about 10 years on the retirement plans. 100% of the retirement plan donations at ABIM and also the American Board of uh, Pediatrics. Don't tell your wife this. Yes, yeah. 100% board funded. I haven't seen that in the private sector where a company is paying 100% of pension. That's you know a thing you don't see that, but at abim and at the american board of pediatrics the the contributions to the retirement plan were 100 funded by the board the employees did not contribute there was no employee dollars being contributed to what you typically see now is more like a 401k arrangement yeah, right there's match and so on and so forth so to answer your question yes there was an explosion of foundations I believe the American Board of Emergency Medicine, which was a topic of a MedPage Today article a few weeks ago, set up a foundation. I thought, oh, God, you know, they're getting into the act now, a little late to the game, but better late than never. My problem with the foundation is that they haven't ever recorded any revenue, as far as I can tell from the tax returns going back nearly 20 years, from services. The only... So in other words, it's, it's like, I don't know, the only income that they have is from, invest, you know, they're sitting on all this yeah. cash that in the front door at ABIM and off to them, investment income. And then they had that choosing wisely grants from Robert Wood Foundation and so on, which they were uh, drunk with uh, that money uh, spent money, I think that c- contributed to their precarious financial situation. They were spending money. They were spending money, even in spite of shipping the money out the back door, they were sh- put, shifting expenses over to the foundation. It was, it seemed, it, there's no economic reason in my mind to this date for the foundation.
0: Right. I'm looking at the information you have up on your Wikimoke, and this will be linked at the show notes page at Paradox.com. So it's Wikimoke, uh, dot org so w-i-k-i-m-o-c dot org and you can find all the different boards and so i just look at the internal medicine and these are all from the year ending 2016 so you know they're still a little bit dated because it takes a while for these returns to get for people to have access to them the abim was worth the total board assets were were 46 million dollars abim was 75 and a half million dollars so being combined they were worth 121 and a half million dollars the ceo at that time richard barron has had a compensation of $850,000. Their executive compensa- compensation was $6.3 million with employees of 283, revenue of $59.3 million. Uh, and then all the other perks and stuff, which of course, you know, I talked about before as far as, you know, you know flying first class, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, my American Board of Anesthesiology, that's worth $35.6 million. CEO makes $364,000, which compared to most of the other specialties, actually makes less than someone who actually worked in the, um, in, the, in the specialty field. Obviously, there aren't many internal medicine physicians who are just straight medicine who are making almost $900,000 a year. And then as you mentioned the pediatrics, we look at that one and this is one that is truly uh, horrific. If you... <laughs> so they have assets of $123.2 million. They have $12.5 million of real estate, they have this to compensate the CEO $723,000, which is probably about the equivalent of three pediatricians pay. That was actually Gail McGinnis, which interestingly, she was my uh, my wife's residency director back when uh, she was in training at the University of Iowa. They had 120 employees, you know, $3.5, $3.5 million in revenue. And it's interesting because the, um, the revenue for these boards actually is more dependent not on, um, I guess, what they do. It's as much as just how many members they have, right? Like, so if you're a primary care, your revenue is so much greater because there's just more people who are you know family medicine docs or pediatricians versus neurosurgeons, for instance, or colorectal surgeons. and and you would think ostensibly, there is not much difference in how the job works, right? Like the the roles are pretty similar. You have to have testing. You come up with various certification plans and stuff. But essentially, you're doing the same thing. It's just you're have commanding a larger budget. And so, you just get more money i guess you know, because you have a bigger budget and these are this is money coming from physicians on the front lines who have again no choice really in doing this piece they even if their hospital said you don't have to participate this in this or let's say they said you know i'm not even affiliated with the healthcare system they still have to get paid by insurance for the most part and insurance companies will say you have to be board certified for us to pay now there are all kinds of other people they don't you know make you be board certified but physicians you have to be And so as soon as you stop paying the money, you lose your board certification, you lose your career. And so you are really a hostage, and that's why docs are, for the most part, pretty upset about this, almost universally. Like, I don't care where you are on the political spectrum, it is stunning. No matter how far to the left or the right these docs are, or anywhere in the middle, it's probably 95% are very much opposed to MOC and think it's a shakedown. Now, most of them won't do anything about it because there's, they don't feel like they feel powerless. And, and,
2: and there's a lot of fear of retaliation. Absolutely. Uh, most most of my donations on our GoFundMe, uh, we set up a new one recently in December, but I set one up back in 2014. The, the docs are do not want to go public, that they're supporting me, even if it's very modest. You know, we're talking $50, $100 donations. Right. They're anonymous. I, they're, there's so much fear that I feel that, okay, don't, you know, whatever you do, don't tell anyone I'm donating to your work. I thought, oh my God, you know, it it must be terrible to be in that kind of a position. But the big issue that the concept, what's happening to your issue of this, having, calling it a tax, or basically the docs have to pay or they're they're out of a job. Uh, A lot of the boards, the most notorious one is the American Board of uh, Psychiatry and Neurology, Who's racked up? They've racked up over 100 million in pro- tax-free profits. <clears throat> I'm talking free and clear, 100 million uh, from 2004 to 2018. And they just finished. They just moved into a their new palatial uh, headquarters, which is really embarrassing uh, for them. I think it's a uh, optical nightmare. You can go on my Twitter feed and see this opulent office that they built. It's well, it's in, it's about $23, $24 million building. So they have all this cash. No one's questioning them. No one's questioning, Oh, are you really a for-profit testing organization? They're making 50 cents on the dollar for every dollar that comes in at at, uh, Psych, Psych and Neuro. Uh, 50 cents gets dropped to the bottom line it's a money-making machine and what they can do with it they build buildings you know they're not going to bonus out their executives 10 million dollars has to get spent but there's a lot of in my report that we and that will be updated with the new report will be okay Mm -hmm. i call it excess reserves the boards are starting to hoard the cash, as you can imagine, just taking it to the next step that you were just talking about. Okay, all this money's coming in. Uh, Cost associated with rendering these tests isn't that high. It's, you know, it's pretty, it's profitable for the boards as far as I can tell. Are they refunding the money? Are they waiving the fees for a year or two? I think uh, Psych and Neuro can waive fees for five or six years. Nothing. Charge them nothing. And they'll be in fine shape. They're not going to go anywhere. They can get zero money coming in from the, their docs and still be in solid financial conditions. So that issue of these excess reserves is very disturbing. That's the consequence. Is And that, that was an issue that came up with radiology recently, was, okay, why are you holding so much in reserves? You know, 25 million, I believe, was the number. It's just a ridiculous amount of money. There's no it's captive money it's like an annuity yeah check payments coming in there's no risk you don't need to be hoarding three years worth of revenue you know for some financial disruption the money's coming in that part of the report will be updated but i believe in 2016 the amount of excess money was pushing three quarters of a million dollars in excess money In other words, the boards could theoretically refund three quarters of a billion dollars in cash to the physician community and still be in and not be a threat to their financial integrity. So
0: I think it's I think a good way of looking at that is, uh, you know, if it was a publicly traded corporation. No publicly traded corporation would have two or three years of revenue that they would be sitting on. They would either reinvest it in their company, provide more services, or provide it for a lower price, or something like that. Like you said, or, or, or give it back dividends, to dividends, right. Dividend, right, give it to right. the shareholders right. or something because right. you know it it immediately makes you for one thing it makes you target for being uh, you know purchased by someone <laughs> a takeover. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, to your point, I mean, you look at the salary for the the head of the uh, psychiatry and uh, neurology was. 900, almost $960,000. I don't think there's a single neurologist or psychiatrist who makes anywhere close to that. And these are people who are commanding these gigantic salaries. And to your point, they're all they're doing is they're just credentialing people. So this is a nonprofit corporation Yet they are acting. I mean, this is sort of like, this is totally a shakedown. I mean, I don't, the fact that you sit on that much money, and I know just looking at my small neighborhood association, which this actually is pertinent, right? So we actually have a sinking fund to, to fund the road, right? So that, so that when our right. roads, we need to repave our roads, we have this money. But what happens is people just see this gigantic pile of money sitting there and it just gets bigger and bigger every year. And they're like, you know, we could replace the lampposts and stuff. Why do we do that? We got all this money, or we could repaint everyone's mailbox or whatever it is. And before you know it, that money is like, it's a siren calling to them they have to spend it. Yes. And you can't, you can't, like, there's no lockbox, right, for these guys. But to our neighborhood's point, we at least have something we're saving for. These boards are saving for, as you mentioned, it's hard to know what it is because they have a guaranteed revenue stream. They can cut their fees in half and they'd, they'd be fine. So why wouldn't they do that except that they are just greedy and there's no one who can stop them because... As physicians, we have no power over this. And to this point, I'll talk about briefly, my wife's a pediatrician. There was someone who ran for the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. These specialty boards, are, or specialty societies, are separate from the boards. They are completely separate. Right, right. But they have a relationship with each other now because if you want to get educational components that qualify for your maintenance certification, well, it makes sense that you get it through your specialty society. These specialty societies see that their revenue is basically just coming from membership. But wouldn't it be nice if we could then sell more of our products, our educational products, and if if we're forcing people to buy this stuff, it's even better for our organization. So someone from the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, I do not recall his name, ran as for, for president of the AAP and not the usual, uh, if you're familiar with these medical societies, you usually are, you're the treasurer, and the next year you're the secretary, and the next year you're the you know, the, this vice speaker, then you're the speaker, and then eventually you're the, the president or the chair, like after six years. You sort of just, it's like an automatic, once you get elected the first step, you just kind of work your way up. Well, he decided just to run for president, saying, I'm going to end this craziness that we have with the American Board of Pediatrics, and he won easily. And then he got there and he realized, and he was unable to do anything. And I don't, he was, became captured by the, the organization because they probably said, we're going to go bankrupt if we don't, you know, continue to support the board fleecing our physicians. And so the people who were there ostensibly to protect physicians and their specialty are actually out there just as much involved in stealing your money (laughs) as the, as the board of, of certification is. And so I, I mean, it it is for many reasons depressing. I know that there was the lawsuit that Wes Fisher spearheaded and that was, I guess, I guess you'd say it's unsuccessful, right? It was thrown out because of, was it because of standing reasons? I'm not quite sure. And if you don't know, that's okay, but.
2: No, no, I'm not familiar familiar with it, but I don't know any of the, I didn't follow all the legal twists and turns and the. The, it sounded like the, the ruling was on a technicality or couldn't be used as precedent or something i don't know what that means from a legal standpoint but it sounded like a setback
0: yeah when it comes to following these these outrageous things that because i think what the abim had offshore accounts i mean they were they're basically hiding money right i mean they were
2: came and i came and i right. how, how, how much more entertaining can this get you know than in you know in june of 20 16, right two weeks before I gave a presentation at the American Medical Association with my theory of this 20 this new mock program being a bail you know that ABIM was in a slow motion death spiral and that this program launched in 2014 was a disguised bailout scheme which I wanted to just come back to in a minute they filed their tax returns and then buried deep into the foundations tax returns, page 38 or something. I thought, whoa, wow, <laughs> what's this? <The> Cayman <laughs> Islands, Auckland House, which is a famous, you know, there's like 20,000 businesses registered at this one house in a location building in the Cayman Islands. I think Obama even brought it up at, at some point in during a campaign. It's like, holy shit, are they that stupid? Yes, it was through a partnership. It wasn't ABM Foundation directly writing a check, but don't they know this partnership is invested in the Cayman Islands? So 6 million of their dollars uh, eventually was allocated to these Cayman Island investments. Dr. Fisher and I, you know, were both apoplectic about it at that point. But to the point of I just wanted to close the loop on the theory, you know, I don't know if you've read Kurt Eikenwald he, he wrote a very thorough four piece article on ABIM and the maintenance and certification controversy. You know he said ABIM, why is ABIM pushing so hard on Mach? He said it's at danger of becoming a financial corpse. You know, I couldn't have said it better myself. yeah you know he can see it right away and I thought, okay. You know, he has a lot of experience investigating scams, maybe even early on with Enron. The question has come up, did their bailout scheme work, right? And you go on my Twitter feed right now, you'll see, uh, I looked at the numbers because the question has come up, did this scheme work? Did this bail them out? And yes, it did bail them out. Certification revenue for new docs was down, 20, about 20 million since 2013 and mock revenue was up you know they saw that in their projections we're going bankrupt we're spending more money than we have coming in we need to do something they're going down so the mock revenue really kicked in the in the year 2017 28 29 2020 where they're up mock revenue over the baseline year of 2013 is up nearly 40 million so Certification revenues down 20, mock revenues up 40. So they're, net, they're basically mock saved their asses, even though they're still not at the value that they were in the year 2000. They're on a consolidated basis, they're worth net assets, they call it, or net equity for equivalent of a private company. They're at about 40 million. They're still 22 million below their 2000 level, which is just hard to get my mind around after all this Money that's come in over the last 22 years is still not where they were at. But anyhow, I wanted your audience to know: yes, the, the bailout scheme uh, was I hate to say unfortunately, but I mean it worked. I think the docs knew okay, this is this is going to work because the money's going to be you know coming into their coffers.
0: I guess you know I feel like the, the amount, same amount of physicians are coming out of training every year. And so why were they losing so much money in the certification process, you know, the initial certification? So when you said certification, you're talking about the initial certification. When you finish your residency, right. you take a test. My, my specialty, you take a test and you do an oral exam. Some, you know, surgeons, they do other things. But so there's that part. And then there's the maintenance part, which is, you know, everybody's doing it. Why were they suddenly losing money? Were they, I mean, people suddenly more expensive- I'll take the test where they just administrative costs balloon for some reason. Do you have an idea for why they needed a bailout? You know, I,
2: d- I don't have obviously I don't have access to their internal records their certification revenue peaked a little bit over 30 million again I don't keep the numbers in yeah, my head. Yeah. I would have gone the same years ago, but it was around 30 32 million in the year 2013 and then it dropped around mid 20 so it dropped 2014 2015 2016 i'm talking just the certification revenue went down it cumulatively from 2013 it's down 20 million i don't know what the you know it's a combination of bodies and feet you know whatever the dynamic whatever the uh factors that go into the formula of generating that revenue for them but it went down yeah Uh, you know and i'm sure they knew that you know for whatever
0: reason sure yeah i'm sure the demographics they say oh we're getting more foreign medical grads or we have more people who aren't sitting for their internal medicine boards they're just going straight to the specialty boards for instance or something like that yeah. right okay yeah
2: but we've got these you know we've got dr fisher and his friends so they'll you know we can we'll, we'll charge them the mock fee you know we've got this other pool of candidates to pick up the slack on the in the initial certification revenue so yes, the scheme did work. Unfortunately, yeah. I was, to be honest, I was hoping they they would be insolvent, where liabilities would exceed assets. But that was uh, <laughs> maybe my more more vindictive South Side of Chicago coming out. You know, we'll we'll nail. You know, they're toast now. But you know, it's sad because it's been around since 1936. Was very once well respected from what people have told me, and it's just sad to see. This organization kind of self-destruct, at least from a PR's uh, point of view. For me, speaking as a patient, yeah, and from my you know non physician perspective uh, with the work that I'm doing.
0: So when you're when you're finding these pieces, I mean, I think we've well documented the crookedness. I guess you don't. I almost say criminal, but I won't say criminal uh, for no, the American Board of no. Internal Medicine. I think everything they did was legal, but really not very moral. <laughs> are there other boards that that are Operating the same thing, or you found things? Maybe either of you found things that happened to other places. You're like, "Wow, this is just, this is outrageous."
2: Yeah, you know, I I mentioned the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. You know, they're making they're the number one money maker among all the boards. They're making they're they're making profits, tax-free profits, around ten million a year. The other we talked about the American Board of Pediatrics. Their maintenance of certification revenue is sky ballooning. If you Go into my Twitter feed, you can see this outrageous jump in certification revenue that then helped feed, don't show your wife that tweet, uh, she may not mm-hmm. sleep. You know, they then shoveled money into their retirement plan. So, you know, they have this kind of uh, situation, okay, what do we do with all this money? You know, we're tax free, don't have to pay taxes. So, you know, they're maximizing retirement contributions, you know, building the Taj Mahal in the case of uh, psychiatry and neurology. The other board that's disturbing that I think your listeners need to be aware of is the American Board of Surgery. It's, I, I haven't really dug into them too much. It's, I'm seeing some of the same disturbing things with them Uh, their retirement plan is now worth twice. It's worth $15 million, is worth twice the value of the board, which is worth about $7 million. The board has been around since 1937. So wrap your mind around that concept. This retirement plan, a pension plan was set up in the 50s for the American Board of Surgery, but then they also have a 401k plan. You know, the this board has been around forever. FDR was president, and you know here the retirement plan is worth twice. There's more money in the retirement plan than in the board itself. The other thing, you know, that's very disturbing to me to see that. The other piece with American Board of Surgery was there was a 1.4 million dollars, some type of a severance payment to the former CEO. 1.4 million. I had never seen that with with the boards. And it was paid in two installments of 700000 You know, that's the stuff that's troubling to me. Is it illegal? No. You know, it's fully reported. I'm sure there was some type of a contractual obligation for severance pay of some type. I don't know the story. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so that's disturbing. Also at the American Board of Genetics and Genomics. Did I pronounce that correctly? Could be. Uh, did I come close? I don't know. Liz is correcting me. She says, oh, you're talking like a Chicagoan again. They took a million dollar, uh, there's some type of wire fraud loss of a million dollars that I tripped over by accident. It's (laughs) funny. Yeah, I I don't, there was some, the Department of Justice filed, indicted a bunch of people relating to genetic testing. There was a scheme going on with some sleazy people that were, I think, selling genetic tests. billing medicare you know some type of scheme where they were bilking senior citizens billing medicare and so on Uh, there was a number of indictments handed down i don't know if the american board of uh, genetics and genomics was involved in that or if this million dollar loss was somehow connected to that scheme did they get sweet talk by some con man that hey invest in this thing and then but they they, they ate a million dollars. Now you think, well, a million here, a million there. <clears throat> at ABIM, that's pocket change. But at, you know that's significant at a small board like that. It represented, I think, almost half of their value. I mean, that could have easily bankrupted yeah. them. So anyhow, those, those are kind of the issues that I'm seeing is the uh, American Board of Pediatrics, the American Board of Family Medicine is also playing clever. <laughs> You know, uh clever reporting of they shipped 7 million to their foundation. You brought up foundations a while back. You know, they joined the foundation club. Maybe they have a bowl. All these foundations have bowling teams or (laughs) they shipped, quietly shipped 7 million out the back door. I don't think ABIM ever shipped 7 million in one year and they tried to hide it. I, I shouldn't say they tried to hide it. It would appear that they were trying to... Uh, obfuscated. list. can remind me how to pronounce that word after the show. You know, it's stuff like that that's very troubling. It's like, okay, do they think no one's looking at this? Or they think they're that clever? I, I don't get it.
0: I mean, it, it very much is like laundering money in some ways, right? It's like, uh, you know, you get your casino revenue and then you you funnel it through your car wash and, and make it look legitimate.
2: Right. So, you know, if the board's saying, well, you know, we don't, the docs don't respect us, you know, respect is earned, you know, when you're playing games like this, okay, maybe there's explanations for what the American Board of Family Medicine is doing, reporting it incorrectly. I'm all ears in terms of how, why they're reporting these transfers to related organizations the way they are. Uh, And I'm open to their side of the story, but what, you know, why is it being reported this way? Are they trying to hide these transfers? They're funneling to Millions of dollars over to their foundation. I, I would be quite upset if I was a family medicine doc.
0: The thing that's all, that is most upsetting to me is it, we, your initial example when you said you took on a healthcare system or insurance a payment system, insurance system in, in Minnesota. Minnesota, right? Yeah. And right. you had plenty of people who were who found your story credible, who found it interesting, and who wanted to go after those guys because right. they were, uh, you know, the the insurance companies have been wearing a black hat for a long time right? I mean, people are more than happy to go after them or, you know, there there are a couple of organizations or types of people that you're, okay, big corporations, right? These are essentially big corporations. So you think there'd be a lot of hostility from the press towards them, but they slap, well, I'm nonprofit. I'm actually an educational organization. I'm just here for certification. And Uh they really are treated in so many ways as with kid gloves by, or at least with a lot of credulity by the, the press and I' I find it really frustrating because you look at this these actions and you're like how can you look at this and not think there's something really crooked and that there's it seems like be a very compelling story that is not that complicated to tell right I mean no it's no, not it's a very simple you're story. not going through like eight steps where you finally steal money it's like you know no. we're just we're sending money to a slush fund oh and oh by the way we have a retirement fully funded retirement account and by the way, no one else in America has this. Even other public employees really don't have this sort of pension program. Right. Correct. Correct. And yet, for some reason, we're thinking that this is okay or it's not a story. It, it would seem very much a story. But I, is it because maybe no one likes physicians or they think they make plenty of money and so who cares about them? Maybe that's it. I don't know. But it, that's the part I find the most frustrating because you can't get any traction to put any pressure on these organizations. I don't know if they pay off the right politicians. I'm not sure but it's frustrating.
2: Yeah, yeah, some, some of the executives do make political donations. You know, I've I've told people from the get-go, I'm apolitical. I don't have a political agenda. I didn't want them thinking, well, you know, is there some hidden agenda? Yeah. You know, or, oh, you're you're ex, you an ex-employee of a board and you had a parting of ways and you have an ex to grind. No, nothing. I'm, I did it really, you know, for the fun and the entertainment of it. You know, it's been a wild ride, but to, to your point on the media... Yes, it is frustrating. I do give uh, Rosenthal-Eichenwald credit for jumping into this story. What's frustrating for us is that, you know, I'll look in my Twitter, my DMs, as I go, where's the DM from a reporter saying, hey, I'm investigating the American Board of Surgery. I'm looking at the, these obscene profits, that's my word, at, and they are, I think, at the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology is that not a story? I, I have a feeling that in, you know, there's been a consolidation in the media world that they're afraid because of threats to advertising revenue. You know, I've, I've had this conversation in my head now for seven years, where's the press? Why is this guy, this, you know, accountant guy and his beautiful assistant <laughs> You Know going after them, where's the media on this story? Either healthcare, traditional healthcare media. My fear is that this topic is too hot to touch, and for whatever reason, for political reasons, uh, maybe there's influence. I, I, I'm at a loss,
0: yeah. I, I well, I can't figure it out. The only thing I could say is that if it would be maybe if you could reframe it and say, you know, here are these these basically these companies that aren't paying any tax, right? I mean there's there's plenty of people who are excited to have people pay more taxes. And so maybe that you can right. some people in the media when you have people executives pulling down millions of dollars and no no tax being and no nothing being put back into the you know, the state coffers or federal coffers. I don't know. Right.
2: You know what's interesting what I found out recently I excuse me, I need to do a little digging. just a Footnote to all this. You know, ABMS, I was looking at ABMS's 990, and you know, you gotta really kind of go line by line and become pretty mind-numbing. But it looks like they because they they set up some goofy thing in Singapore or something. I don't know if you're familiar with that. There's the doctors, some doctors are really upset. It's like, why are they selling these services? You know, they're going global. <laughs> they I do think they have to pay tax, they're paying more taxes. They're paying taxes to the city of state of Singapore, you know, than they are to Illinois, where they're headquartered, or the U.S., I assume, you know, it's just, the whole thing seems totally goofed up.
0: Can you briefly talk about the ABMS? Because we've been talking about the specific specialty boards. What is the relationship of the American Board of Medical Specialties, which is the, I don't know, the umbrella organization? Yes. And... How you know how do they get funding? Because they don't have I mean I'm not board certified with ABMS. Are my yes. is my board paying them money to Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah. There's about uh seven or eight different buckets of revenue that are that are pouring into ABMS. I just I'm working on updating those numbers for twenty nineteen. I do recently in the last week or so have ABMS is twenty nineteen. Uh, tax returns. So there's about seven sources of revenue. The primary source is, again, I'm talking off the top of my head, but I think it's fairly accurate, is the membership dues that they're collecting from the other boards. Yeah. And yeah. They have their other significant, you know, investment income, you know, that's typical, that's normal stuff. They do have some miscellaneous revenue, maybe dues, dues and subscriptions of some type, maybe publications. But in and this is an issue that Dr. Fisher has been tracking in more detail than I have they set up a for profit company ABMS solutions i believe headquartered maybe in georgia i'm not sure that showed according to their filing zero revenue in the year 2012 they're now pushing uh 6 million they put they're pushing 6 million or 7 million in 2019 and what they're doing is selling the doc. I, I'm assuming that they're selling the physician's data. That The issue that Dr. Fisher yes. and others yes. are freaking out about, it's like, okay, do these docs realize their data is being sold?
0: Right. And that makes that makes a lot of sense, right? Because one of the things that uh, I've served some, a long time on the one of the credentialing committees in our hospital, I wasn't on the physician end. I was in the uh, mid-level providers. But essentially, you know, the credentialing part of the hospital's they just want easy access to information to verify who people are. And so these, <coughs> these specialty societies say, hey, we'll do that for you. And I know they, I don't know if they do it for free. I wouldn't doubt if they are pretty much free, but it, and then they extract the money from the docs to pay for that service to give to the access to hospitals, you know, for the infinite database or whatever it is. Um, so I, I imagine that's how sort of how that works. But you can definitely see how the ABMS, I don't know how they charge the specialist societies, but certainly if they say, we need, want some percentage of what you get from each member, then it is absolutely to their advantage to push as much of this MOC stuff through all the different specialties to, to, yes. to jack up the revenue in order to increase their revenue, especially since they're even less uh, accountable than the specialty societies.
2: Yeah, I see, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm sure you would agree with me. I don't care, you know, if it's a legitimate business, you know, like a testing business. You know, they pay taxes, you know, they can I don't care what they pay their executives are paying taxes and they're offering services or something that there must be some demand for it. But, you know, what's troubling is that these are nonprofits, which certainly seem to be scheming and playing accounting games when they can or think they can get away with it. Uh, that's what's uh, troubling.
0: Well, if this hasn't raised the blood pressure all the physicians listening, um, you've got a
2: yeah, great- Yeah, nothing will, right? You've
0: got some great antihypertensive meds. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so uh, I want to thank you guys for being on the show. Uh, if people want to follow more about what you're go- doing, I mean, obviously go to the Wikimoke. Where do they follow you on social media and where do they find out more stuff about this?
2: My Twitter handle or our Twitter handle is uh, Charles P. Kroll, at Charles P. Kroll. K-R-O-L-L. Wikimock.org is the homepage. Uh, I I would like to send out an appeal. We're in the process of raising funds to update the 2018 report with new numbers. If any of your listeners are interested in anonymously or publicly sponsoring, uh, it's a great way to uh, get even if... if, um, i don't have a problem with that if revenge is your motive i'm off i'm with you a hundred percent you know or just uh, you know i think it'll be a, a great service to the physician community to get these numbers out there as soon as possible uh, for 2019 so uh, your listeners can contact me through wikimock.org it's been a challenge the lack of media interest uh, scrutiny other than rosenthal and eichenwald yeah there's a lot of fear in the physician community that i get people looking at my profile almost one per minute believe it or not my twitter profile so people are looking at our stuff frequently, but I don't get the followers. I think they're afraid, okay, if my employer sees I'm following this guy, uh, I'm going to get called into HR. Uh, It's just shocking to me that there's, you know, I don't want to read too much into that, but it's strange. I'm getting one profile view almost every second, yet where are the followers? Yeah. So I uh, follow it. I'm being shadow followed, And that shows you, I think that speaks to the level of fear within the physician community. We just started investigating the medical ed Boards, the Federation of State Medical Boards, the American College of American Association of
0: Yeah, AAMC, I think is what.
2: Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm kind of new to this, this game, the Educational Commission of for Foreign Medical Educated. You know, I'm starting to dig into those boards. That's a whole new, it's a whole opening up a, a new front. And, you know, the these young kids that are saddled. I, I know every, you know most physicians say. Are paying off their debt, or yeah. you know, recently got it paid off. These young kids that are really upset with what's going on. When I show them that a Federation of State Medical Boards just bought Columbia's uh, embassy, former embassy in Washington D.C., they paid over list price, five million, whatever the the amount was. You know, twenty seven bedroom mansion in Washington D.C. You know, meanwhile these kids are thinking, you know, I can't even afford a Starbucks, and this is type of bullshit that's going on with these medical ed boards.
0: What appeal would you make? Because a lot I think probably about half my listeners are non-physicians. So what is your appeal to people who aren't in medicine? Why should they care? I mean what what do you think what difference does it make to them that physicians are paying extra money to this these medical boards that are crooked?
2: Yeah, I think the the broad appeal and, and you know some people have argued that the media doesn't jump into the mock issue because it's, you know, I've been told by a journalist that oh that's inside baseball stuff the public doesn't want to you know they their eyes glaze over and they think yeah so what yeah. you know these are rich doctors you know that thing I think the the appeal to the pub general the public the wider public these are organizations that are masquerading as nonprofits and functioning as for-profits and they're not paying any taxes and uh, for me personally, I can, as far as the mock issue, my primary care physician in Minnesota, at in the in her prime, at Park Nicolet, a large system, well respected system in Minnesota, she bailed, she quit medicine in part because of all these,
0: yeah, you
2: know. You know, it was take. I couldn't get an appointment. She's preparing for the mock. You know, it it does have people think. Well, it doesn't affect me. Yes, it does affect you. You know, I lost my very good physician. I was really upset about that. In part, not entirety, but in part due to the the testing requirement. The broad issue is the corruption. You know, what I would describe as this corrupt nonprofits. You know, should be of concern to the public. Yeah. Do you have any? What are your and thoughts on that? I,
1: I would say I had no idea what mock was until I jumped into the research and analyzing the data, and I was astounded by the level of corruption that I was seeing, or what I what I viewed as corruption in these numbers. And I thought, oh my gosh. Uh, this is outrageous. I can't wrap my head around it. So I was an extreme outsider uh, as many of the patients and uh, regular public in your audience are. And I couldn't understand either why this story was not being picked up. Unfathomable to me and the lack of ethics I was seeing in what should be an ethical
0: foundation. Yeah. And I think, you know, that is probably the best statement on it of all, because these are also run by physicians who are in academic medicine, who are the ones training our physicians, our residents, and medical students. And they're the ones who ultimately end up leading these organizations. And they are, I mean, they're just extortion rackets, and they have to know on some level what they are. And it's that is probably the most disappointing thing that our profession has people like this who are just robbing us. <laughs> so... I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Keep up the good work. Uh, We'll obviously recommend people to to look into more of the work. If you are a physician and you have a specialty, which, of course, you do, you can go to that wiki uh, mock page and find all the – make sure you're seated. Maybe had something – have a drink first so you're a little mellow before you look at the page, before you look at the compensation, how much extra money these these boards are bilking for you. Uh, But I highly recommend you check that out because – uh, it's good to come in and and you will get other physicians i mean like i said you'll have every physician on your side because everyone thinks it's a, a crooked scheme thanks so much guys
2: yeah thank you i i would just uh if they if they want i would recommend a blood pressure pill yeah uh first would go to my tw- twitter feed you could find you know real time current numbers and you know which are worse or as worse or as <laughs> than, more uh, more Worser. worse than more worse you know it's just mind blowing the responses I get from you know these docs is like wow yeah. this is unbelievable I can't believe this is happening
0: it is It is one of the things that makes me the most discouraged about medicine when I enter this topic so I try not to talk about too much but it is very important so thanks again alright thank you thanks again to Jacques Kroll And Liz Trembly, before we end, don't forget to reach out to Larry Keller of Physician Financial Services for your disability insurance needs. He's been around for a while in many physician communities helping them with their coverage they need. Find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller.
1: Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox show notes can be found at the paradox.com.